Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon. Um, and today is jo joining me today is uh, Steve Rolls, who's a uh, a well-respected writer, policy analyst, um, predominantly working for the uh, drug policy think tank uh, Transform. Uh, welcome to the Bandwagon today, uh, Steve, and it's a uh, it's a pleasure having you on. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's re it really. Um, I think we've spoken a few times over the years, but never in in this kind of like a, in this format. So I'm really excited in terms of uh, where some of these discussions go today. Cool, great. Well, let's 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 see where it leads. Yeah, let's see where it starts. So, Steve, you've been like uh, really at the forefront of trying uh, around the whole um, the legalization debate in the UK. If I just ask you, can you give us a quick snapshot for those people who, who may not be uh, fully aware of the drug policy within the UK or, or Europe or the world, for those people in this country to start off with, where are we with that with that discussion? Well, I mean, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a good time to be having this discussion because this year is, in fact, next month is the 50th anniversary of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. Um, so it's 50 years, really, that we've had the same uh, drug policy, the same foundational piece of legislation, which is fundamentally uh, prohibitionist in nature. So the, the idea of the idea behind it, I mean, you, you can trace the, the concept of prohibition and, and a kind of criminal justice approach, a punitive enforcement approach to drug control, you can trace it back further, you can trace it back to the beginning of last century, but in terms of its sort of modern incarnation in, in UK legislation, it is the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, and the idea behind it, and it's not a, you know, it's not, it wasn't, I don't think it was a malicious plan, I don't think it was e conceived in any evil way, um, but the idea was essentially to deter people from using drugs by criminalising the possession and use of drugs, which is what the Misuse of Drugs Act does. Not for all drugs, obviously not for alcohol and tobacco, but cannabis, you know, uh, LSD, heroin, cocaine and so on. And then to use punitive enforcement against uh, the production and supply of drugs to reduce the availability. So to deter use and to eradicate the market. So that's been a 50 year project um, that has absorbed billions upon billions of pounds of taxpayers money. Um, and it's been a total failure. Uh, you know, it's it really on its own terms, it's been a stunning failure. It, you know, it's not deterring use since 1971, use of almost every drug has increased um, and the scale of the market has grown enormously. So on its own terms, on its basic goals to deter people from using and to reduce availability of drugs, it's failed. Drugs are more available now than they've ever been. They're cheaper in many cases, they're purer. Anyone who wants to use illegal drugs can get hold of them very easily. Um, and millions of people do. So, uh, and, and more and more people do. And so it's failed on its basic premise, which was to, you know, to, to create a drug-free society. We're further away from that than we've ever been. Um, but its failure is, is, is worse than just failing on its own terms because it's actually created or exacerbated a whole series of um, harms. So it, it's actually made drugs which are intrinsically risky 
more risky because when you buy illegal drugs, there's no, not, you don't have any knowledge about what's in them, about their strength and purity. They may be missold or adulterated. Um, there's no information on safer use available from the vendor or on the packaging. Um, and it's, it's also led to mass criminalization. You know, millions of people have, uh, are criminalized by these laws. Uh, millions of people have got criminal records as a result of these laws. And that burden of criminalization and the stigma and harm to life chances that it carries, um, that burden has been carried disproportionately by the most marginalized and vulnerable members of our society. So the poor, so racial minorities, um, you know, economically and socially mar marginalized groups, as with so many other uh, aspects of society, uh, carry a disproportionate harm. So our argument really is that the whole criminal justice uh, paradigm for dealing with drugs has failed and we need some new thinking. Now, in terms of the debate in the UK, I think there is a general acceptance of that overarching critique. I think there's a general acceptance that what we're doing at the moment isn't working, has not worked historically and, and, and change is needed. Um, and I think probably that's most dramatically shown by um, the, the, the issue with drug related deaths. I mean, it's the most sort of striking, startling, heart wrenching, awful uh, manifestation of the failure is the fact that the UK has like a third of all uh, European drug deaths take place in the UK. We've got uh, the highest amongst the highest levels of drug, drug related deaths in the whole of Europe and Scotland in particular has the highest level of drug deaths in the whole developed world. Um, and they've been rising and rising over the last five to 10 years. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a very striking um, manifestation of the human cost of the failure of our drug policy is the fact that, you know, drug related deaths um, are now in their thousands every year. So pe people see that failure and, you know, it means that today, I think a lot of the sort of drug war rhetoric, the kind of, look, let's get tough on drugs, let's crack down on drugs, let's, you know, punish people, let's, you know, send in the police to smash up drug gangs and all the rest of it. It ever, it rings ever more hollow. It, pe people aren't, aren't buying it. And it's not just the public, but you can see that the, the debate has moved on in the media. So even sort of traditionally conservative media like the Daily Mail and the tabloids and the Telegraph and Times are um, adopting much more sort of open-minded progressive positions on the need for change. Um, we're seeing much, it's much easier for politicians of all, all colours, all, all political stripes to discuss drug law reform openly now without being kind of accused of being weak or soft on drugs or surrendering and all that kind of nonsense that you, you did used to get a lot of in the past. Um, and I think we're seeing increasing sophistication in the uh, the voices of civil society. And that's not just blowing, blowing our own trumpet for transform. Um, you're seeing, for example, the Royal Society for Public Health and the Royal College of Physicians and the British Medical Association and the Lancet and the BMJ, these very author authoritative voices professional organizations, senior police, are calling for new thinking. They're calling for an end to the criminalization of people who use drugs. They're calling for a public health approach instead of a criminal justice approach. And so I think the debate is definitely moving. I mean, there are many different dimensions to it, you know, the support for 
ending the criminalization of people who use drugs with decriminalization is uh, quite significant now. I mean, that's been in a majority for some years. Um, support for more progress, more, you know, more radical change like legalization and regulation of drugs is, uh, you know, moving as well. We've seen some polls in the last couple of weeks, two polls that showed uh, a majority, a narrow majority of the British public supporting legalization of cannabis, for example. Um, so there's, there's a definite feeling of um, change momentum. And I think part of that is driven by the international context because there's a lot of reform going on around the world. A lot of countries are decriminalizing drugs, ending the criminalization of these drugs. Um, cannabis has been legalized across North America and Mexico and Canada and across the world. And um, so just merely talking about these things um, is now not, is, is mainstream. It's not like when Transform started 20 years ago, we were seen as kind of cranks and extremists and radicals for suggesting um, a different approach and for suggesting the war on drugs has failed and we should think about ending prohibition and exploring legal regulation. But today, Transform is quite kind of, you know, <laughs> we're not we're not cool anymore. We're kind of quite mainstream and, and boring now, which is which is how it should be. We, we want those debates to be mainstream and normalized because that allows it to move forward. So, you know, there's still a long way to go, um, but change is happening uh, around the world and change is increasingly happening in the UK. And you've seen that with you know, police diversion schemes in five police authorities across the country. That is effectively like Portuguese style decriminalization. So decriminalization isn't, you know, we can call it diversion or decriminalization or de facto decriminalization. We can talk about that more if you want. But, you know, the fact is, it's already happening in the UK in five different police authorities. So, you know, these things are happening, like drug testing at festivals. Uh, it's happening, you know, already. The Loop is doing it in at multiple festivals every, well, not in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, but before that, back going back to 2016. Um, heroin prescribing, you know, heroin prescribing is legal availability of the most sort of feared and threatening, threatening drug of all is then prescribed legally uh, to people who are dependent on heroin. So, you know, it is a, you know, it's not legalization because it's in a, in the classic sense, because it wasn't criminal, it's a medical, um, provide through a medical channel, but, you know, these things are already happening. The debate around drug consumption rooms, for example, I think we're within, we're within touching distance of, of a pilot drug consumption room in the UK, probably in Scotland. I suspect Carol Black will recommend it in, in probably next month. And then the government will probably use that as a cue to do it. So. A lot of things that would have seemed impossible only a few years ago are actually already happening in the UK, which I think could make people feel confident that debate around things like wider decriminalisation at a national level, um, possible legalisation of cannabis, um, a, a model somewhat like Canada, is probably not as far away as many people think. So the debate, it's difficult in the UK, you know, things aren't moving as fast as in certain other countries, but we are making progress and um, I think the stage is set for a lot more progress in the next coming months and years. I mean, you've explained it eloquently and probably one of the best ways that I've heard in recent times around, you know, the debate around legalisation. I think the question I, 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 it's common sense, we know that. 
I think we can all kind of agree that the, the mainstream parties will will have it as like political suicide if if they did their open manifesto straight away. I'm open to be dis, be persuaded. Apart from the, the the real factual information that you give, what is the main resistance of why the, the actual conversation is almost kind of hushed away and, and people don't want to think about it? We we go through little bizarre scenarios of where you have the ACMD having that little dance and in terms of like um, giving their recommendations. Is it actually ever enforced on some bits? So you've got like cl the classification uh, jumping around again from you know certain drugs from B's to C's, A's to whatever. Why can't they just open their mind and have a bigger conversation in terms of like raising the whole issue around declassification declassification or legalization? I, well, I mean, sort of going back to what I what I started with is that I think we are getting there. Yeah. Um. I mean, if you you know you can you can really see some quite enlightened um, views becoming very mainstream. So the Times newspaper, yeah, they ran an editorial in response to the Royal College of Public Health calling for decriminalization of all drugs. The Royal College of Public, you know, the Royal College of Physicians supported that. So this is, these are mainstream authoritative professional voices, professional bodies calling for decriminalization of all drugs, not, not, legal, not legalization as in legal supply, but sure. ending the criminalization of possession. Um, but the Times wrote a editorial in response to the Royal Society of Public Health call saying, look, we support this call. The problem with it is they haven't gone far enough and called for legalisation and regulation of drugs as well. So this was in the Times. This was a leader. This was their leader editorial. You know, The Economist has called for the legalisation of all drugs for years. Um, the British Medical Journal has written an editorial calling for the legalisation of all drugs, and so has the Lancet, these are, you know, the most authoritative medical journals in the world. So, you know, it, I think it is being normalized. And I think one of the, you know, if you wanted a, uh, a kind of um, sym symptomatic of how far things have come, we are currently organizing a kind of campaigning initiative around the, the anniversary of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, to get and we, we, our aim was to get 50 uh, MPs and parliamentarians to sign up to this to sort you know 50 MPs for 50 years sort of thing yeah um, and we only launched it a couple of days ago and we've already got 50 <laughs> I think I, I think probably by the time we get by the time we uh, May, May 26th is the um, actual anniversary date and we're doing some events and there'll be a lot of media around that week um, hopefully we'll have nearer to 100 and, and you know these are not MPs and, and uh, peers saying we want to legalise all drugs. The statement they're signing up to is um, the war on drugs and the Misuse of Drugs Act has failed. We need to, uh, you know, have, a, have a, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically yeah. you need, we need to have a, a rethink and find policies that actually support our shared goals of delivering public health and reductions in crime and, and so on, which, you know, so there is an acceptance and that, that's we, we've got um, MPs from the Conservative Party, Labour Party, SNP, Greens, Played. I think we might even have one from the DUP. So, yeah. it, you know, it, across all parties, there is there is there is um, 
not just behind the scenes support that's been going on for years we've been talking to mps for years going yeah yeah, yeah no i agree with that but i'm not going to say but it they've stepped over the line in order get to... killed in the media yeah, yeah they've stepped over the line in order to put their face to the actual yeah and the that, thing yeah. is that they've they, they're coming out and supporting these things a bit like sadiq khan saying he was happy to look at um uh, legalizing cannabis last week in the run-up to the mayoral election you know he's he's looking at that now He's coming out with, I'm going to look at decriminalisation, legalisation of cannabis, like weeks before the London mayoral election. Not because he thinks, you know, not, not because it's going to cost him, but because he thinks it's going to win him votes. votes yeah. And I think to me that again shows how the times may have changed, where a, a, a well-expressed um, kind of uh, clearly made argument um, acknowledging the failures of the war on drug and calling for sensible reforms done responsibly and in, in a kind of adult way, not just, yay, drugs are brilliant, um, can actually be a political asset now rather than a political cost. And all these MPs and people who are stepping out and calling for drug law reform, they are not getting slaughtered in the media. It's just not happening. So I think this, this idea that uh, it's political suicide is just you know, it's just not true. So the, the Green Party now has a really strong platform calling for the legal regulation of all drugs. And they are, you know, at least in percentage terms, they're, they're doing well, uh, you know, yeah. um, in the UK and across much of, much of Europe. Um, the Liberal Democrats have a, have a policy calling for legalisation of cannabis. I mean, Transform did a lot of work with both the Green Party and the Lib Dem. We'll work with any party yeah. if they, when, when they're ready to come up with a good policy. Um, obviously, the party you want to work with is the party of government, um, and that's a Conservative Party. And in some ways, it may seem like they're the furthest away because they are small C Conservative as well as big C Conservative. But interestingly, you know, as with other parties, but um, particularly the Labour Party, there's actually a split within the Conservative Party. You've got your kind of the more sort of moral authoritarian sort of Anne Whittaker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who were very anti. Uh, drug law reform yeah. and take more socially conservative uh, positions on those sorts of issues and then there's actually a quite a sort of uh, more sort of small government libertarian free market type grouping within the within the conservatives who are very up for it so you've got some you know people you know I'm not a sort of conservative I'm certainly not kind of Brexiteer but you've got a lot of those people um, do actually support drug law reform. So you've got people like Nigel Farage supports cannabis legalisation. There's a number of MPs who supported our campaign. You've got people like um, quite quite sort of right-wing, you know, commentators, people like Tim Harwood or Richard Tice and mm -hmm. Guido Fawkes, who are all openly advocating for um, uh, cannabis reform in particular, but in many, in many cases, wider reform. So, you know... For me, it's a it's a strength of the movement yeah. is that we have support from the left and the right and the centre and everywhere in between. And, you know, Transform is probably one of the only organisations in the world that's had endorsements from Milton Friedman, the famous free market econo economist, and from Noam Chomsky, the famous yeah. sort of um, left wing political theorist. So, um, you know, for me, it's great because, I, I you know, I hate sort of culture war politics and partisan politics and... You know, yeah. we do get to work with, you know, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, both of whom, interestingly, have drug policy reform groups, um, you know, that are actively promoting 
uh, drug law reform agendas within their respective parties and the, and the Lib Dems and the Greens and so on. So the, the, on a, the, the party political landscape is quite interesting. You've got some parties like the Lib Dems and the Greens sort of who, who are very committed to drug law reform already. Um, the two big parties where really, you know, realistically, if we're talking about affecting political change, where you need to get support. Um, I think we're seeing quite a lot of movement within the Labour Party in particular. Sadiq Khan, I think, was quite symptomatic of that. Um, we're not seeing much movement from, you know, Starmer seems to be quite risk averse. He's made some rather disappointing comments about drug law issues in, in, the, in, in recent weeks. Um, but you know, even he was, in the he was talking about part, it. He was talking about it in the, in Scotland, wasn't he? When he when Starmer went up. Yeah, to he said he, he was asked about. He was just asked about something as as basically um, timid as decriminalising possession of cannabis, which is you know nominally decriminalised in, in in much of the country anyway. Um, there's diversion programs. There's like you know warning warning schemes. A lot of you know a lot of people who are caught with cannabis wouldn't be prosecuted anyway. A lot of people still are. Don't want to make out that problem's yeah. gone. But um, don't want to send the fines to you. Yeah, he no. He, I mean, he <laughs> and he said he thought the policy was roughly right. And I I, it, it, I think he was a bit caught off guard, and he kind of defaulted to a sort of old school status quo position and hopefully he, he will be being pushed by some of his more forward-thinking MPs and I think you know even if you're being completely politically cynical and I'm not saying he is or any, I'm not saying anybody is but it's getting increasingly clear that um, a drug law reform position I'm not there's obviously there's nuance and sophistication within this as to what what we're actually you know if you say well, we're going to legalize all drugs your, your support will go down to eight, 10%. But if you're saying about, look, we want to have a public health approach, we want to end the criminalization of vulnerable people, we want to, you know, invest in treatment and education rather than putting those people in prisons, you, it, it, it's actually popular. People, because it's not just that people see the failure of the status quo, they don't want to have to pay for that. And, you know, we, 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 spend, we are spending three to four billion every year enforcing the war on drugs in the UK. Um, and then we spend billions and billions more dealing with the fallout of that failure in terms of the crime and, and ill health that it, it, it's fueling. So people don't like failure. Um, they, they feel that the police have got other things they should be worrying about rather than busting small time drug users and, and weed yeah. smokers and so on. You know, they don't wanna see vulnerable people chucked in prison they don't want to see sort of you know racist policing and disproportionate policing of, of ethnic minorities and you know the, the tide is really turning and I think there is very much now a moment and political space where um, if you make the case and you make it clearly um, it can be a political asset do you think just touching back going back to the, the, the your the the cannabis debate are you yeah. seeing how, uh, do you think that these politicians um, are starting to see uh, the fruits in, in other countries where, the, you know, that the whole legalisation and obviously with Brexit just happening, trade options, we are, the UK is one of the biggest medical uh, suppliers or growers of, of, of cannabis and they're thinking, hang on a second, this is a bit of a low hanging fruit here, we need to, we can get, we can win this pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like on cannabis, there's a number of things aligning that may push, you know, I mean, if I look at something like um, equal marriage, you know, gay marriage, which, you know, 
five or ten years before it actually happened in the UK, no one would have imagined that it was going to happen. It would have seemed like you know a distant fantasy. Mm. Um, then it happened in the then it happened in the US, and suddenly it became okay to sort of talk about it and advocate for it, and it became much more mainstream. And then you saw David Cameron and Theresa May and people doing videos saying, yeah, we, you know, equal marriage, you know, advocating for it. Voices who, you know, what had historically been a sort of third rail conservative issue suddenly became very much more normalised and mainstream. And then it happened. And now a couple of years later, we look back and go, what, did that used to be illegal? Are yeah. you serious? Yeah. You know, and it's some, something that seemed impossible has now happened and it's completely normal and it's just weird to even think that it was ever mm. illegal. Now, cannabis is being rapidly legalised across the US. And I think when, and it, and it, it, it pr probably this year, we'll see the, the, uh, the Moore Act passed. It's been sponsored by the vice president. Um, it was championed by the, the speaker of the house, uh, this last week, he actually tweeted, you know, happy 420 yeah. um, from, the, from the Senate majority leader. Um, and I think when that happens, when you get federal legalization in the US, uh, I mean, there's already about, exactly. yeah, I think it will just, it will, it will make it a lot easier and it will, it will, it will sort of accelerate, I mean, it's a sort of domino effect, accelerating the debate here. Um, because I think, you know, your, your more craven politicians will look at that and go, yeah, hang on, we want a piece of that. Um, yeah. We want a piece of that business. We want a piece of that money. We want a piece of that tax revenue. And increasingly, we want a piece of that popularity because it is a popular position with some of their key demographics. You know, the Conservatives are desperate to appeal to a younger group who generally are overwhelmingly supportive of cannabis legalisation because they, you know, just for various cultural demographic reasons. But it's not just the US... You've also got Mexico is uh, legalizing cannabis like next week, literally next week. Um, and Canada legalized cannabis in, you know, a couple of years ago, 2018. So we're rapidly getting towards the point where that entire North American continent will be a legal cannabis jurisdiction. And you've got Uruguay and you've got Jamaica and you've got some states in Australia. And there was a referendum just narrowly lost in New Zealand. South Africa is legalizing cannabis, you know. Luxembourg is legalizing cannabis, Switzerland is legalizing cannabis, Israel is legalizing cannabis, the, the Netherlands, I know everyone thinks it's already legal there, but it's not, they are actually finally legalizing cannabis production supply to the coffee shops in the Netherlands. So all over the world, it's kicking off with cannabis. And it, it does feel that there is a sort of domino effect inevitability to it. Um, and, you know, because each time one of these countries does it, and it's shown to be effective and you know that all the all the doom mongers disasters don't happen you know you don't get these explosions in youth use you don't see stone drivers all crashing into each other and all the all the sort of disasters that people are predicting don't happen yeah. um, and actually you see criminalization criminalization of people who smoke cannabis drop you see police save loads of time you see new tax revenue um <clears throat> It actually works, you know, unsurprisingly, prohibition's a disaster, regulation makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, it, it makes it much easier to for politicians to get behind it if they can point to other countries that have done it. It's a bit like Portugal and decriminalization. Yeah, yeah. You point to it and go, look, they did that, the outcomes were really good. Why don't we why don't we give it a try?
And so it, it, it really knocks out the legs from underneath the arguments of the opponents when you've got real world case studies unfolding all over the place. So I think cannabis legalization is probably accelerating. And I think that for the conservatives, the economic argument may also be a really important one because there's about around a billion a year in tax revenue from a legal cannabis market. That at the moment, they're, they're, they're foregoing to the you know, illegal operators. Um, and, you know, and, and given the you know, economic challenges we're facing with Brexit and the pandemic and all the rest of it, um, the, the prospect of a billion a year in tax probably quite attractive to, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. to your cynical, craven politicians. <laughs> That's it. It's true. I mean, like in 2013, I think it was, yeah, you wrote a book around um, how to uh, regulate cannabis and, and an actual practical guide of it. Yeah. How close were you <laughs> from actual, from when it started happening, from, from your plan, what the way that you foresee it to actually somebody who's got it close to perfection. So if, if we're going to go, if, if the UK is going to go down that road, you, um, you know, obviously you're, you've obviously discussed it in your book and you looked around, but which, yeah. co- which countries has got it almost spot on that we should yeah. be thinking well, of a I model mean, it's of a really good, It's a really good question because different, you know, there, there isn't, when, when we say let's legalise cannabis or let's legalise any drug, um, there's more than, there's more than one way to do it. Yeah. You know, you can go from a, a very strictly regulated sort of almost a state monopoly like they have in Uruguay to the much more sort of commercialized markets like they have in you know Colorado and some other US states which is much more like sort of alcohol markets with sort of branded products and marketing and advertising and uh, big corporates and so on and then you've got somewhere like Canada which is somewhere down the middle where you've got uh, in some ways strictly regulated it's strictly regulated so things like unbranded packaging and you know bans on advertising and marketing but then you've also got kind of these big corporate players and some 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 troubling trends towards kind of corporate monopolization of, of which production one, which ones in, is it and with, is, you know with alcohol and tobacco companies big yeah. alcohol and big, big tobacco are they, are they coming in? in are they coming yeah, into they're the coming cannabis in market big. yeah yeah now uh, you know and i think that's that's very worrying and mm. Uh, you know, we write about our concerns about that. You know, we, it, we I don't want big alcohol and big tobacco, given how awful they have been historically, mm. you know, undermining public health regulation at every turn, prioritising their prop, you know, profits over public health at every turn. Um, we really don't want them bringing that kind of expertise in corporate capture and, you know, just that ugly, the ugly side of sort of corporate drug sales um don't want that in cannabis markets but but the interesting thing is you know with with something like legalization cannabis you've got an opportunity you've got kind of a blank slate you can build the market and structure it in the way that we think is appropriate for a drug associated with those particular sets of risks and we should be able to learn the mistakes that we made with alcohol and tobacco um, and make sure we don't have them again and so you can do things that remove some of those profit incentives to increase use that we've seen with alcohol and tobacco by having, for example, state monopolies like they have in Uruguay or unbranded products, you know, plain packaging like we now have with tobacco, but they, they implemented from the start in Canada. Mm. Um, and, and, and things like, uh, you know, limiting the number of licenses you give to any particular corporate uh, 
uh, player like they do in Massachusetts in the US. So you, we can look at all these different approaches for cannabis regulation around um, North America and around the world and say, okay, how can we learn from that? Um, see what's working, what's not working. When the UK gets there to do it, we can hopefully design um, a, a, you know, a really responsible market that can meet the demand for cannabis in a way that um, protects public health, reduces crime, you know, protects vulnerable populations, creates government revenue, um, and you know, breaks down some of the, the problems between police and youth that you see around cannabis enforcement, particularly black male, black, young black men in, in you know, London and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, we can do it right. And that's, that, that is the work Transformers trying to do. Um, and we've worked with, you know, I, I worked as a consultant in uh, Uruguay, designing their policy and, in, and with the Canadian government in Canada back in 2016, uh, sorry, 2018. More recently, I've been working with the Luxembourg government. And, you know, so th there, is, there is an appetite for the kind of thoughtful, evidence-based, methodical um, work that Transform has been doing. Um, and that is why, you know, we're often getting calls from governments now when they, and, and the Mexican government as well, who we've also been working with. Um, and, and the New Zealand government, we've actually been working with five or six different governments well, now. You, to, you, you were just, you know, you were saying, and, and you, you mentioned, um, it's, it's on your post as well, that you, if you watch Netflix and you're watching all the narco stuff, and you're just seeing everything about Colombia, but you've, you've been involved in discussions with, with the Colombian government, is that right about? Yeah. The, mm. With the legalization of, uh, of cocaine? Yeah, so um, uh, I was just actually, uh, a book I wrote in 2017 called uh, uh, Legalizing Drugs, a key, The Key to Ending the War, which is going to be available from next week, I think, as a PDF on our website. You don't have to buy it. I'm not plugging my book. But... Do you want, do you want, I'll put the link. I, if I put the, I'll put the link to the website and then you Yeah, can... put the link on the website. I, yeah. I'll, I'll be tweeting it later in the week. Yeah, sure. Um, but the foreword for that book was written by Cesar Gavria, who was, he was, a, he's, if you've seen the Narco series, yeah. he was the president of Colombia in that <laughs> series who took down Pablo Escobar and he wrote the foreword for my book. And he's, a, you know, he, he's someone who fought the drug war himself. You know, he fought against Pablo Escobar um, took him down, in fact. Do you think um, he won? Do you think he won? So go on. Do you think he won? Who? Pablo? No, obviously not. <laughs> no, he did, no, well, he, he didn't. But you see, that's the point that he, yeah. he fought the drug war for, you know, li literally fought the drug war mm. for his whole term. Um, and Colombia has been fighting the drug war, you know, in many, in many ways, our drug war for us on the front line in Colombia for decades. And it's, and it's, you know, ravaged the country, destroyed, you know, um, fueled the civil war, caused untold human displacement, human misery, human death, fueled so much violence and cartel corruption and insecurity. It's been absolutely, you know, and that's something we really need to think about is that our drug policy in the UK and in, in the Europe and in, in the developed world has this, um, huge impact on the producer countries and transit countries, places like Colombia and Afghanistan and Central America and Mexico, where the where so many plant-based drugs are produced uh, and, and transited, you know, at, they're, they're, they're to serve primarily to serve markets in, in Europe and North America. Um, so, you know, the decisions we make here have yeah. impacts in Colombia, you know, the, the, the cocaine that people are using in London does come from Colombia. Now, 
you you do hear that quite often. Oh, you're you're if you're using uh, cocaine, it's unethical, and you're fueling, and that's true. It is. It is unethical. People should not be using cocaine because it is fueling violence. But it, I, I always feel it's a bit. It's just they've got it round the wrong way if they're blaming the drug users, mm-hmm. because it, it it's not like the drug users have an option to go and buy fair trade ethical, you Coke. know. Uh, organic cocaine yeah. it's not there's only one kind and it is the cartel variety mm. um you know if if there was two car if there was ethical fair trade cocaine and people were still buying the cartel stuff i'd say okay now you've got a better argument but yeah. it's not it, it's prohibition that creates that problem and i was just actually looking at one of the un reports today the uk is the biggest importer of legal medical cocaine in the world we import about 350 odd kilos of cocaine a year for medical uses and that so there is this there is a legal cocaine market um coca leaf it's grown in peru it's flown to the us it's you know the, 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 they take the cocaine out for medical use and the, the decocainized coca leaf goes to the coca-cola company to make coca-cola hence the name coca-cola or coke it's because it's made from coca which is where cocaine comes from and then all the cocaine <laughs> comes to the uk so that you know there is already a legal cocaine market it's not a mystery that and, and that that legal cocaine market there's no pablo escobar there's no cartels there's no violence there's no you know decapitated bodies being strung up off motorway bridges it's it's just a normal pharmaceutical product like everything else and that is what a legal market for cocaine would be people are going to be using cocaine either way yeah you know whether it's prohibited millions of people are using it if it's legal millions of people will carry on using it but it'll be legal it won't be associated with all that horrible carnage and and, and mess so yeah it, the, the the same logic that applies to the legalization of cannabis that, that you know prohibition doesn't work it makes everything worse legal regulation would help us protect public health reduce crime and all the rest of it it applies to more dangerous drugs as well, including cocaine and, and, and including heroin. And we've already seen, you know, we've talked about heroin prescribing. Heroin prescribing is heroin. It's the same heroin, but you get it from a doctor instead of getting it off a street dealer. And that heroin, a lot of it's grown, the, the poppies are grown in the UK. You have great big fields of poppies growing all over Devon and everywhere. That is then, you know, that opium, same opium you grow in Afghanistan that soldiers are out there trying to, you know, flamethrow it's turned into heroin and some of that heroin is, is prescribed to, to dependent heroin users in the UK already. So, you know, we've got these both with cocaine and heroin, we've already got legal markets of these products that show how that can work yeah. in a way that is so vastly less destructive than it's under just, prohibition. But either way, yeah. heroin and cocaine are here. It just needs, it's, it's the misuses of it. It's just like, if you're able to kind of find the regulation, find yeah. that, find that, that middle point, I think everybody can get. I think there's a lot of pros for it to happen. Yeah, I think, I think so. It's, that way. You know, it's, people find it a lot more challenging the idea of a legal cocaine market than, and it's understandable than a legal cannabis market. Cocaine sure. is obviously a more risky, more addictive drug, and it's you know, and it it, it it's more problematic. You know, and it, people cannabis is less threatening, and I I get that, and it's more widely used, and um, but you know, the the fact is cocaine drugs like cocaine or mdma or whatever it is they're here anyway 
So that I was because yeah. uh, 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 the horse is already bolted. It's all, exactly. It's, so I always get into these debates. People are people are sort of like, yeah, but if you legalize those drugs, people might use them, and I'm kind of like. People are using them anyway. They would suddenly be easily available. Yeah. But while we keep them banned, they're not. They're, they're, they're easily available now. now. Um, and, and prohibition is not stopping that. They're, they're, if anything, they're more available because you have unprincipled, you know, you have unregulated dealers selling them on the streets to anyone who's got money. That's, you know, there's no ID, there's no controls, there's no age controls, there's no controls of any kind at all. Um, and yeah, so it's, for me, it's like, you know, th that's our choice between a responsibly regulated legal market. And obviously there are questions about how you get that right in terms of controlling marketing and price and availability and all the rest. Of it. And those are important questions, but the option is prohibition and an illegal market controlled by cartels and unregulated dealers. Yeah. There's no third option in which case, in which that market just sort of magically disappears. We can't wish it away. It's here anyway. So it's about regulation and control. It's not about saying drugs are good. It's about acknowledging that they're here and dealing with reality. I'm um, just talking about the market. Um, are you aware of any evidence um, that the past 12 months has had an impact on the market? In terms the, of like, the pandemic yeah, yeah i think so i mean there's been there's been some quite interesting surveys release have done a, a, a sort of rolling survey um and so of crew 2000 the scottish outfit yeah. and um and also there's been some surveys done by the global drug survey adam winstock um you may know yeah um <clears throat> and they've generally showed that there's been it's been a quite a mixed picture i mean on the whole there's been a a, a decrease in things like mdma and cocaine use which it sort of makes sense because the nighttime economy is not there. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of club party drugs, um, unsurprisingly, because uh, people aren't going to clubs or festivals, uh, use of those drugs has tended to go down. Um, drugs, which maybe you might make a case, make more sense in the context of lockdown, um, have, have both gone up and down. So if you look at both, uh, well, things like cannabis and alcohol, there's been some some people have used lockdown as an opportunity to you know okay I'm gonna everything's changing I might use this to make a change in my life cut my alcohol use or cut my cannabis use or whatever some people have stayed the same but there's quite a significant group of people who uh, it went up know, man. It's <laughs> for me for me the my alcohol use when we first, when lockdown first started it was got it, it it I never used to drink at home. And all of all of a sudden, it just started. It was well. It was you can see, it, can't you? People, yeah. people were bored. They were lonely. They're what, or, or they're, you know, you know, they're, they're anxious. You, so drugs, are, sort of drugs of escape, or you know, if you were just playing your PlayStation, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you might want to just, you might just smoke more weed. I mean, it's yeah. all. It, it may, it, there, there's a sort of logic to that, yeah. um, and that for certain for certain groups. So some people use has gone down. Some states say. But quite a big group it has it has crept up, and you've seen alcohol use has crept up. Drinking at home, um, cannabis use I think has crept up. But and I suspect it's partly kind of Netflix and PlayStation, you know, mm. bought, bought boredom, Zoom quizzes. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, people who are uh, in abusive relationships yeah. or people who are anxious or depressed, and you know, there has been this mental health problems associated with lockdown, and a lot of people will self medicate with drugs, whether they're legal or illegal ones um <clears throat> i think 
there was a, one surprise. I think a lot of people thought drug availability would go down, that there would be a drought of drugs because it would be harder to get drugs into the country. There's less movement of people. Um, it would be harder for drug dealers to move around um, because you know there weren't very many people on the streets. But that did not seem to happen. So there, I mean, I, I, and I was among them, and I have to admit to be yeah, wrong. I thought that drug prices would go up um, and drug availability would go down, but there wasn't really much evidence of that. There were some localized sort of blips where you know a drug sort of the prices went up or the purity went down, but for the most part. The illegal drug market was really surprisingly resilient. So even though you had this potentially big market shock to enforcement yeah. uh, through um, the pandemic, combined with um, these big police operations, I can't remember what it was called, where they where they bust the, the big uh, um, encrypted phone networks and they did these mega busts and sort oh, right, of, yeah, yeah, it was operation, a, something or other. Telegram. And they got they they got uh, like six hundred drug dealers all across Europe all in one day, and it, like it had a big impact on the market. But the, you know, if there's one thing we've learned about enforcement against drug markets is is that they're incredibly flexible and, and resilient. And you know, however hard you hit a market, um, the, the, the sort of economic dynamics tend to find a way you know if there's money to be made there there's there's, there's a big queue of criminal entrepreneurs who, who are willing to you know find a way so the market responded pretty well and um availability didn't really change that much but, but doesn't that just show the impact how deep access is into the in in the in the country because you've got You've got a pandemic. The country was almost in lockdown. You've had Brexit where people don't even know, uh, you know, about importing goods and everything. And yet it was still readily available. Yeah. And, well, and, it, and it just shows thing, it's there. Yeah. And you've also got um, technology is, is making, creating new ways of, of uh, for the illegal market to operate. So, you know, the, the dark web, I mean, it's, it's the dark web. It's all very sinister. It's like for kids, it's easy. You know, you can, you can go to one of these websites and buy drugs really easily. And I'm sorry, I don't want to advertise this, but it's not difficult. It's, it probably won't come as a mystery to most people. It's not difficult to buy drugs. Mm. You know, the dark web has made it very easy. And in some ways, it, well, it, it's, it's made it safer because, you know, you can go to the dark web, buy drugs. They're kind of, um, the, the vendors are quality rated a bit like on eBay. You know, people, yeah. if you if they sell good stuff people can say yeah this is great go buy off this guy um and uh and it's delivered to your door so you don't even need to interact with an uh, you know the elite the potentially dangerous illegal market and hopefully the stuff that you buy may be a better quality because there is this vendor rating systems um and you know whatsapp a lot of people that there are these whatsapp dealers who, who send around menus with their price list and you just ping them and they'll be at your door within 20 minutes with yeah. whatever you've ordered, you know. And in many ways, this new the technology, whether it's the dark web or smartphones or, you know, encrypted messaging applications, it's making drugs more easily available. Yeah. And, and enforcement just can't get on top of that. Every dark, dark web site they shut down, three new ones will open up the next day. Um, every dealer they shut down, every WhatsApp dealer they arrest, there'll be plenty of other ones who will just sweep up their customers. It's just not that difficult. 
um, to sell drugs and it's impossible to shut the market down. The economic dynamics of it mean that you can't get rid of it. And, and again, I come back to it, that is the reality that we are dealing with, that there is no enforcement answer to this. We've got to take a pragmatic harm reduction approach, not just harm reduction for people who are using drugs, harm reduction in terms of the market itself. Because yeah. an illegal market is profoundly harmful. It criminalizes people, it fuels crime, it fuels violence, it makes drugs more dangerous. Um, and you know, drugs are, drugs are risky. There's enough problems with drugs already without them being even more risky because they're supplied illegally. And because we criminalize users and push them away from the kind of help and support that they could benefit from because they're scared of being criminalized. I mean, you know, if, if the authorities who are trying to send out responsible drug using messages and, and, you know, harm reduction messages and risk reduction messages are also trying to arrest you, it's not surprising young people stop listening. It really isn't. So on every front, the criminal justice approach is, is, a, is a flawed policy paradigm. Um, but the devil's in the detail, you know, the way the way we approach different drugs is going to be different. Cannabis wouldn't be regulated the same way that MDMA or cocaine would be. And co they wouldn't be regulated the same way that, you know, uh, medicalized injectable heroin provision already is in the UK. And there's, you know, there's the ones, uh, um, there's a heroin assisted therapy program opened up in Middlesbrough and very, very successful. It's legal heroin. It's already happening. Are we... I kind of experienced a little bit of the dry run of uh, um, of a little bit of that kind of verified seller, um, which was around when Mephedron right. sort of blew onto the market and where people could, um, you could look at the reviews of where, where to get it from, how much they paid for it. And uh, that was my kind of first exposure to kind of cryptocurrency as well, because then right. Bitcoin came onto the scene, how the, how the, how they were able to, how the dealers were able to kind of legitimize it. And so I still got like presentations of when I was talking about Bitcoin and everything. And when I see some of the prices now, honestly, um, it's very, very depressing, Steve. Well, it's it's, it's funny. <laughs> funny you should say that. I, I um, uh, someone I know, a friend of mine, um, bought a, a few Bitcoin. This was a few years ago, like a few years ago. Uh, as a, for, for basically for buying drugs, I'm, I'm, you know, mm. I'm not going to not going to name any names, but to buy it was only to buy weed, I think. On on mm. on, uh, and you know they spent a bit of them, but they had a couple of Bitcoin knocking about, which they got, you know, for hundred quid each or something. Yeah, and they're worth sixty grand now. <laughs> 80, 80. <laughs> and it was just like, but it, it was like bloody hell! I got <laughs> yeah, <laughs> buying illegal drugs basically made. I had it as a on the I've got the presentation when I was talking about it. I had a little video. I had a little video of where to get it of like um of how you'd buy it and how it was done. Um well it's not available for anyone just watching. Um and the price there was like it was one pound for for one bitcoin. That's how they were trying to market. So you need 10 bitcoins to go and buy. You know, about you know, ten pound. Like that'd yeah, be worth yeah. six hundred grand. And now. so I, I was, oh, it was honestly when I, I have to, I filed it away because it honestly gets me so because I was like really into it because it was, it, it was the currency for the dark web, wasn't it? In terms of like, oh, this is how you'd buy, yeah, 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 buy yeah. Your, and and so therefore those people who kind of invested in then knew it blew up. I, I remember one of my mates, yeah, no, he, so he had three hundred, he had three hundred bitcoins. And he sold it when it was um, 
when he went from one pound, he went to five pound because he thought, I've made my money. He ain't gonna, he ain't gonna go anywhere. <laughs> well, that, I mean, it happened to it happened to us. Someone donated one bitcoin to Transform, um, wow. and I think at the time they were worth about eighty quid or something, or fifty quid. Um, and it, and it, um, and it went. It was kind of going up and down. It went, it went up to. It, it sort of went. Everyone was. All, everyone was writing about it. Oh, it's gone. Bitcoin's gone crazy. It's worth a thousand pounds. And I was like, sell, sell, sell. <laughs> so. So we sold this, we we sold this Bitcoin and we're really pleased that we sort of, you know, this 50 pound donation had become worth a grand. And I was like, no, 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 no. grand it's, now. It's, it's just crazy. That was like, you know. It's crazy. So I mean we, we're talking about kind of like the next the next the next kind of evolution in terms of like the generation of conversations that we've discussed about already. We've talked about a little bit about the currency. We look we talked about the markets and stuff. Do you feel, and this is a bit of a, a kind of a personal question, do you feel that the kind of area of um, people like yourselves, organisations, is becoming more a bit of a, like a, an echo chamber as well? Because like we're really, it's the discussion around the wider drug and alcohol agenda is getting lost on the political um, on the polit- political menu. Um, yeah, I think there, there's certainly a, there's certainly a risk of echo chambers in in any field of debate. Um, you know, I, I hope transform uh, we can stay reasonably grounded and, and and objective about where we sit in the national debate. I mean, we can monitor our media engagement, and you know, we've got we've got um, as you know, we've got this campaign called the uh, Anyone's Child, Child, which is about families who've been impacted by and, and individuals who've been impacted by the war on drugs personally whether they've lost some they've lost someone to overdose whether they've ended up in prison um whether they've been a victim of, of uh, you know either police police abuse or um you know uh violence related to the illegal market and there's stories from the uk and actually from all around the world um, including mexico and africa and elsewhere um, and those stories uh, have given us a uh, an opportunity to engage with a much broader audience. You know, for people who, who read stuff I do, it's quite, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's quite dry and quite technical and kind of quite textbooky. Because I think, you, you know, you need you do need mm, that technical regulation, theoretical work um, to underpin the, the, the more the advocacy stuff you know there's got to be something sitting behind it so we do that as well but the, the thing that's been so brilliant about anyone's child is that it's much better because you you can you can engage people at a human level at a sort of emotional personal level yeah and it just opens us up to a much bigger audience and different forms of media so you know and anyone's child stories get in take a break magazine that people read on the table they're on the table in the dentist um, we get in the in the in the in the tabloids. We get reported in the Daily Mail. We get on the, you know, on the the couch of breakfast TV news, and people tell their stories. And and you know, it's the same sort of stories that you've been hearing about drugs for years. You know, someone's overdosed, or someone's lost, or someone's been a victim of something or other. But the difference is that rather than using that to justify the war on drugs. These same people, these same parents and families and brothers and sisters and so on, they're using those stories to say, we need change because it, it's not just the drugs that are the problem here. 
it's the whole policy and legal framework. It's our whole way of approaching and thinking about drugs, which has fueled um, the, the, the harms and the, the pain and heartbreak that I personally have experienced. So that's been a really good thing for us because it does, I think it does move us out of that kind of slightly ivory tower policy, nerdy academic world that we transform can tend to inhabit. Um, and, 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 and it forces us to engage with the, the human yeah. stories and the human cost and of, of, of failure. And it provides a, you know, it provides a motivation for me and the rest of the team on a, on, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, um, I, there is there is definitely a risk, uh, and you know it has been difficult in the last few years. Uh, the drugs issue has certainly moved down the political agenda. I mean, it, you know what what with COVID and Brexit, almost any other issue has been struggling for oxygen. To be honest, um, even massive issues like uh, climate change, you know, they've been struggling for attention. When you've got something as uh, you know overwhelming as the as the the pandemic or you know Brexit, just it's like a black hole just sucking up all this political and media energy. Yeah. Um, and we're going, hello, hello, there's something terrible going on over here, and we've got some good ideas, and you know it's, it's just quite difficult to to break through. But you know we do our best. I think that the, the 50th anniversary is going to be a good opportunity. There's a whole year's worth of activities related to that. Um, you, you know, you try and find these moments. Uh, you know, it's quite a big, sprawling, complex issue, drug policy. It, it engages at lots of different levels, criminal justice, public health, you know, racial justice, uh, you know, service provision, policing, the courts, prisons. There's, there's all different points you can kind of engage with it. Um, and a lot of complexity. And we need to find simple messages that can sort of bring people on board because re- you really do need to get the public behind these things. Um, and it's it's just a lot more difficult to make the case for, you know, a nuanced, balanced policy platform of reform and public health led, you know, ending criminalisation, exploring regulation. It's much more difficult to... I've just got one of these great big transformed 200 page books. And then some politician comes on and goes, drugs are really bad. We should chuck them all in jail. You know, at a gut level, those messages still have appeal. You know, it's not like we've, we've won all the arguments yet for a lot of people. They don't want to listen to me droning on for hours about, you know, tax regimes for different types of cannabis and uh, some other boring stuff. Um, you know, the populist drug war message does still have a sort of visceral appeal um, in, 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 in it, it, its bumper sticker Twitter appeal, you know, um, and it's quite difficult to make these more nuanced messages. I think we do a reasonable job of it. And I think anyone's child really, really helps because it engages at an emotional level, but um, still a long way to go for sure. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, which sometimes I get, uh, well, I, I get uh, asked it quite a lot really is, um within the um within this field there isn't that many people from uh, the diversity is not necessarily represented very well in 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 a lot of the kind of high echelons of organizations and uh, uh drug and alcohol ones how do you think we could kind of uh work together into not me and you work together well we can in terms of bringing in more of that diversity into the 
into this whole sector so we i know that there's a huge problem with especially kind of like alcohol and and cocaine especially for the younger uh, younger guys within the uh punjabi market uh my, my background how do we get those those people to kind of engage in with those messages so you've got the bigger political kind of messages but then we also got around the health messages it just feels like that, that whole side of engagement kind of gets missed I think it's a re really good point, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, you know, I have to acknowledge my my privileged position as a you know white, educated, uh, you know, middle class man. You know, uh, I, so that's same as me. I have, to, no, I have, I have, I have <laughs> to acknowledge that before I even begin to answer this question. Um, I hope people who look at Transforms publications and materials and outputs will acknowledge that these are um, important issues that we've never ignored um that always have been at the heart of what we're doing mm. um that we acknowledge issues around marginalization and vulnerability uh whether it's e economic social ethnic cultural um both within the uk and in fact internationally so we've always had a uh, a, a strong development element it's some of those things i was talking about earlier you know that the fact that it, it, it's you know it's poor people growing coca leaf in, in the jungles in, in Colombia. It's poor farmers growing uh, cannabis in uh, Morocco. It's poor farmers and families, you know, growing opium in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's need, not greed, that sort of transitioned them into illegality and, and, and the threats to that and, and, and risks that that puts them in. Um, <clears throat> but in the UK, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, as, as I hope I mentioned earlier, uh, it, the burden of the cost of the failure of the war on drugs are carried disproportionately by mm. socially marginalised populations yeah. and individuals, absolutely. Um, one of the things I'm really proud of that we've recently done is we got funding from the Trust for London to do um, a collaborative project with Black Sox, which is a, a, um, a black community organisation in London. Um, basically sort of allyship where we will provide the technical support for them to engage with the uh, local black community in London to kind of explore ideas around drug law reform and what it means for that community. So, you know, for us, it's about listening and supporting and, and informing that dialogue, but really just to get their views and to, to get the dialogue and debate going because Drug law reform is coming, whether it's decriminalisation, um, whether it's, uh, you know, allowing home growing of cannabis, whether it's a more structured commercial legal cannabis market, whether it's other legal drugs in the future, whether it's tolerance of drugs in, in the nighttime economy, whatever it is, it's coming. Uh, there'll be different things and it'll, it's going to play out over the next generation. Um, and so this project with Doomy Black Sox, which is actually being launched this week. So again, check Transform's website, Twitter yeah. feed, if you want to um, follow up on it. Uh, and we're recruiting, actually. We're, we're going to be recruiting uh, a staff member to uh, work on that project for the next year. So if anyone's interested in that, do look out for it on the Transform website. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a really, you know, it, it's very much our first effort that we've actually managed to get funding for where we can do that where we can do that uh reaching out and allyship and supporting that narrative and supporting that debate in a more structured way and we've actually got some money to do it now that including 
um, appointment of a new post. So I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Um, I think the the whole Black Lives Matter movement has really, uh, particularly in the US, but inevitably it's flowed out, flowed out across the world and to the UK, has really highlighted the uh, the link between the war on drugs and um, oppression of minority communities. And I think it's it's been a really valuable and useful development in the drug policy reform debate to see those two narratives kind of merging in a more coherent coherent way and it's and it's I, I think it's helping accelerate both movements um and, and this new project with black socks hopefully that's one of the issues that's going to be discussed because you know things like stop and search in the uk you know they're they're they're, they're incredibly corrosive of police community relationships and 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 the, you know it's incredibly corrosive of already vulnerable and marginalized populations just getting hit again and again and again and just pushed down and down and down so anything we can do to start to repair those relationships and start to um support some of those uh impacted communities individuals is obviously going to be good ending criminalization ending the war on drugs is going to be a is an important part of that it's not doesn't solve the problem right you know you're, you don't end the war on drugs and end racism or end institutionalized racist policing or any of that sort of thing. But what it, the war on drugs is a tool of uh, oppression and racial injustice. And, you know, as we roll back the war on drugs, that particular part of the problem begins to diminish. And, you know, that is a, it's an important part of the narrative. It's an important part of the reform narrative. Um, and this new, pro, this new allyship with Black Sox um, is going to be a, a big part of Transform's work on that particular issue going forward. Yeah, um, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, I think what was um, some of my experiences and why I kind of, not in an arrogant way, but kind of like came onto the scene. I was I was working in there, then all of a sudden there was like, oh, who's this guy? Just come out of nowhere, you know, dude. I can't, it was because I just couldn't get a seat at the table to hear the, hear the voice. So I just thought, fuck that, I'm making my own team, or I'm making my own table. Do you, uh, do, you feel it, do you feel that's changed in recent years? I think it's got worse. Really? Yeah. And I, how, and de I, how depressing. Yeah, uh, the reason why I say that is because the, the, the market in terms of where people are listening has gone smaller. You will know when you do conferences, the people who can attend has gone smaller. People, elite, those valuable staff members who have kind of left, left the whole field have gone. Um, I was speaking to Nigel Brunsden about this very point of how he's, he's, he's like, sometimes he's in fear of, uh, of waiting for who's the next person who's going to pass away or, or the, cause that, that valuable experience has gone. Um, mm. I, at the time, a few years back, you know, in Punjab, uh, in like in northern India, you got a population of around about 30 million there. And the stats that were coming out was something like 65% of families there had at least one member who died from, a, uh, from an overdose in the last 12 months. And, I, and, and, and when I was hearing the arguments that are happening here, I go, this is like Christmas over here. You want to see what's going on around that other side. And, and the reason why it was, why it was important because you've got that you've got that migration of families from over there visiting, coming over here, trying to get themselves medicated, or users from this end going over there to try and um, get themselves clean, 
however they had access to all the you know you that's where that's where the whole opium was coming from that's where mm-hmm. the, like you've had then people who've come human trafficked illegally trafficked around the uh, around europe learning about drug routes and drug markets then going back to india and opening up these new markets with new with people who they've met you know other criminals and other cartels so all of a sudden you've seen this ramp this ramping up of where um, pharmaceutical addiction you know pharma addiction started kicking in uh, actual farmers um using uh pesticides or chemicals on their own uh on their own uh, uh land uh, uh taking out loans which they can't afford suicides increasing all kind of centralized for me around a kind of a a, a, a drug market a government narr- narrative um but was those people would be missed here because they couldn't there wasn't a service that was their forum you know that they could that they could recognize so and then I got like I said it before already in about three times but I'll be interested for your answer to this part was um you know I got burnt out I was knackered I couldn't I couldn't really talk about it anymore because I was I was tired you know hearing even some of the stuff that I've said from there how do you keep yourself kind of motivated and say like I've thrown a challenge just then now how would you even start to try and look at it and say, this is what we can do? I mean, I, I do, you know, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can, there's a, there's a limit to what I can do. And there's a oh, limit yeah, to what, I'm just saying there's a limit, opinion no, wise, there's a limit to what Transform can do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying from, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is we, not, we try not and play you. Our part. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying is that uh, us, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said you, in terms of like, what we can do in this in the, in this in this in this country as kind of what being we can the, do to sort the problems out here, or what we can do to sort the problems out well, in, in every in, like, yeah in, deve- in, the whole yeah. development. Because if at the, at the same time we're looking at um, you know you're you're working across the world, you've got you've seen um, your experiences, you know which is good. Is there a blueprint that can be kind of put together, adapted in order to say right? Look, if governments are not going to enforce it and get it done, as a people, as organisations that can they can utilise it and make it more inclusive. Well, I mean, there is, um, you know, drug drug treatment and 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 harm reduction have been shown to be uh, cost effective in in uh, low income, middle income, and high income countries. I mean, we know that they work, and actually, basic uh, service provision, basic harm reduction, is not expensive, um, and. You know, it's not expensive, and you know the same case that you would make for harm reduction in one country, it, it does it does cross borders. You know, harm reduction treatment works. It works for individuals, it works for communities, and it's cost effective for governments because if they don't deal with those issues, again, being cynical politicians, because unfortunately a lot of them are, if they don't deal with those issues, it creates greater costs for them and society downstream so even cynically even when you don't care about the people um, I mean I do I hope you do and we all yeah. do but if you're a politician you don't care about you care about the, the money and it it, it it makes sense to do it um, on ev- in every way and I think um, international advocacy action through international uh, organizations like harm reduction international do fantastic work around the world uh, action through organizations like UNAIDS and the World Health Organization who do, and, and even the UNODC, um, 
they can do uh, good work advocating for better services um, in, in low-income countries and, you know, for marginalised communities all over the world. And there are really, there are really good examples of that happening. And I think it's really good to learn from those good examples and share, share that knowledge um, more widely. There's good, there, there, is, there, are, there are some really good examples of service provision in India, for example, and in Thailand, and um, that can be, that, you know, that can be shared. I mean, it's not, it's not an organisation, it's not uh, something Transform can do, mm. but we work with organisations like uh, IDPC, the International Drug Policy Consortium, which is a network of, you know, I think about nearly 200 now organisations, uh, including drug service providers all, all across the world, advocacy groups, civil rights groups, human rights groups, harm reduction providers all across the world, including a number of groups in India. Um, and they do, they share knowledge, they share expertise, they provide solidarity and political and technical support. Um, I think that's the best we can do, you know, work collectively um, as a civil society through umbrella groups like IDPC to try and address some of these, uh, the, these local, localised challenges. Because, you know, we can talk about, you're right, we can talk about these issues in very broad, generalised terms, but every little local region, every town, every country faces their own unique set of you know political cultural economic challenges and 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 any drug problems that they're facing have to be seen through that particular lens as do any solutions to those sure, drug sure. problems so you know me going oh yeah i'm working on legalizing yeah. the bill to legalize cocaine in colombia that's no use for opium problems in uh punjab yeah but there is good there is there there are examples of really good practice and best practice and treatment provision for uh opioid opioid uh treatment provision in india which yeah. can be shared and can be done so i think you know dialogue working together um collective action to pressure governments you know is it, it, important but get, get getting those big institutional voices on board um telling those stories getting out there it, it all helps yeah yeah i mean i'm in a i think it's a lot there's been a lot more positive in the last 18 months or two years that you know from what i hear anecdotally anyway that it is moving i just think at the time where we were looking at um you know is there a central place where you can get that model of excellence or what it looks like or something that was easily tangible to kind of uh, activists over there to try and to try and to try and move that um and and i think that in the last 18 months like i said it was definitely emerging um, just coming towards the uh, kind of the end on this, I mean, it is called the bandwagon and I, and I do this with every guest. And is there something that, you know, that is something that you want to kind of get off your chest or that you see um, that you experience in the, within this field? Um, I still, I do, I do feel that there, there remains within the drugs field, and I'm talking here more about the service providers and the, and the people who were, you know, workers in the drugs field. Sure. That there, there does remain a kind of reluctance to rock the boat, um, to challenge the status quo, to say uh, the laws don't work. That's a massive generalization. There are loads of brilliant advocates um, and champions of change uh, as well. But there is an institutional reluctance 
uh, particularly among some of the bigger service providers, not all of them, some of them are great. I mean, you know, CGL, Kaleidoscope, there's some, a, a bunch of them are really quite full on and outspoken, but some of the service providers um, and some of the sort of institutional bodies, uh, the, they, they're very reluctant to challenge the status quo. Um, advocacy for even something like ending the criminalization of people who use drugs. So ending the criminalization of the people in their care, of their clients, you don't, I don't see that kind of vocal advocacy that I would hope for. Um, and I find, I do find that frustrating. I, I appreciate that a lot of it is funding related. You know, a lot of them are government funded or local authority funded indirectly and they don't want to rock the boat you know they don't want to bite the hand that feeds um and i hope that some of the kind of umbrella groups within the field like collective voice for example can become more um outspoken more passionate in in terms of advocating not just for um <clears throat> you know more funding of Obviously, funding issue in services and treatment is a massive issue. I appreciate there've been cuts. It's a it's a disaster. They need not just to have those cuts, uh, you know, uh, reversed, but they need additional funding. I absolutely acknowledge that. Um, but I think there's there's a lack of acknowledgement of the harm that the legal policy environment is inflicting on the people that a lot of these services are trying to support. Um, you know, a lot of people who um, are harmed by drugs, their problems are quite simply made way, way worse by carrying the stigma of a criminal record or by using dirty street drugs uh, in, 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 you know, marginalised environments because of the criminality. So I'd like to see people in the field engaging with that critique more um, and coming together and acting collectively, not competing with each other for funding, but working together collectively to push for change in a more structured and focused way. So in the short term, ending the criminalization of people who use drugs, as well, I mean, as well as obviously all the funding issues and commissioning politics and all that stuff, but specifically on the law, ending the criminalization of people who use drugs. So they can't, you, you can't be not saying that. It just feels completely inappropriate. The World Health Organization said the entire UN infrastructure now has a common position advocating for decriminalization of people who use drugs. It, there's no excuse. The Royal College of Physicians, there's no excuse for service providers not speaking out on that anymore. Um, and, but beyond that, also advocating, acknowledging the harms of prohibition and beginning to engage in a more public and focused strategic way in the debate around legalization regulation, because it's coming and it, they are a vital voice and they need to be at the table. Because if they're not at the table, it's gonna happen anyway and they won't get to have their say and they need to, because they are the experts or they, they, are, they, they represent a considerable body of expertise that needs to be part of this discussion. At the moment, they're not, or at least not enough. So that would be, I guess, my appeal to the people in the field. Got uh, that one off my chest. Yeah, no, that's how do you feel? <laughs> I, 
I feel better. It's <laughs> quite therapeutic. No, that's cool. That's cool. Steve, it's been a pleasure. So um, what I'm going to do is, well, in, during this podcast, we've mentioned uh, several books in the links. So anybody who's listening um, on YouTube or especially in the description, I'll put all the links on there so they can uh, look at all that. Um, be really excited for next month's uh, huge campaign kicking off so we can hopefully get it over 100 plus with the with the MPs. Um, and then we'd yeah, get everyone, to, everyone write to your MP. Go and check on mm. the Transform website. We've got a, like a, you know, some suggestions on what to say. Get get them to sign up to it because it's yeah. a, it's a fairly it's a fairly open call. It's not too contentious, but it's acknowledging there's a problem and that there's a need for change, and that is a starting point. Yeah, Steve, just a personal thank you. You've always been one of those people that um, you know, if ever I was unsure about. Uh, a particular kind of narrative or discussion point I always check your profiles always have a look at you know your points and you've always been really engaging so even if something that's been uh, anything that's been raised on here and you want to get more information I definitely know they've got a a real open door policy so uh, just a personal thanks from me Steve really yeah do anyone who's interested get in touch with us thanks very much thanks great to to be on the show all the best all right cheers mate cheers